My name is Mark McGuinness, and this is the 21st Century Creative, the podcast that helps you thrive as a creative professional amid the demands, the distractions, and the opportunities of the 21st century. Welcome to episode six of season three. If you've been listening to the 21st century creative since the start, you'll notice that one of the unspoken themes of the show is to introduce you to the various mentors I've had over the years. So far, we've had Mimi Calvati, Kristin Linklater, and Stephen Pressfield. Today, we have Rich Litvin, who is very well known in the coaching community for his work helping other coaches create successful businesses by creating success for their clients. I've learned a lot from Rich over the past few years, and he certainly had an impact on my business. He's here on the show today to talk about a subject that's very close to my heart, and that is helping high performers to achieve their full potential without burning out in the process. These days, as a coach, I personally work exclusively with high performers in the arts and the creative industries. And it's very clear to me that high performers need specialist support, and they don't always get it. Partly, it's because there aren't too many people ready to offer the right kind of support at this level. But also, it's because many of them are terrible at asking for help, until it's too late. So, if you're guilty of pushing yourself too hard in pursuit of your creative ambitions, then I heartily recommend you listen to today's conversation with Rich. He is a very successful and very exclusive coach. So this is a great opportunity for us all to learn from someone who works with clients at a very high level and for us to take some insights that we can apply to our own dreams and ambitions. Have you ever started work on a big creative project and found yourself paralysed by listening to the voice of your inner grouch, giving you all the reasons you should give up? Who do you think you are? Don't you know this has all been done before? You've never done anything special before. What makes you think you'll succeed this time? Why are you setting yourself up for disaster? And so on. How can you fight this kind of negativity? Well, you could spend a long time trying to get to the root of your psychological issues. Or you could try learning some big new motivational method or productivity system to help you overcome it. Or maybe you could try fighting fire with fire and using a mantra. I am creative. I am am strong. I am powerful. I will do this. 
Or maybe you've already tried all of this and none of it worked. If you'd like to try another approach, I have two small words that have got me and my clients unstuck and back to work many, many times. They aren't much to look at. You could hear them several times a day or pass them in the street without noticing. But they are surprisingly powerful. Here are the two words I'm thinking of. Even though. I told you they don't sound much, but try them out and you might be surprised. All you have to do is add these words to any negative statement from your inner grouch and they start to take the sting out of them. Even though I'm just a nobody. Even though it's all been done before. Even though I've failed before. Even though this is bound to be a disaster. And here's the punchline. I'm going to do it anyway. Try doing this for a week each time you hear the Grouch's voice and notice any changes. And if you're sceptical that something so simple could make a difference for you, then do it anyway. When you set out on a creative career, you won't find any of the usual milestones of success. Unlike your friends who enter traditional jobs with clear routes to promotion, finely calibrated pay grades and impressive job titles, there's no career ladder for people like you and me. And there are no clear markers to indicate your progress. If you compare yourself to your friends, it can be easy to feel left behind as they climb higher and higher from promotion to promotion. It's obvious to all the world that their career is going somewhere. Whereas for you, on a bad day, it can feel like you don't have a clue where you're headed. So how can you chart your course and set yourself up for long-term success as a creative? This is the question at the heart of a short book I've written to accompany this podcast. It's called 21 Insights for 21st Century Creatives. The insights are designed to help you stay true to yourself and your inspiration amid the demands and distractions of 21st century life. They will also help you to win on your own terms by adopting a strategy for success that has nothing to do with the conventional career ladder. And I'm giving you the ebook edition for free to pick up your free copy of 21 Insights for 21st Century Creatives. Go to 21stcenturycreative.fm slash 21insights and download it right away. Rich Litvin is a coach who specialises in taking high achievers to the greatest levels of success. His clients include Olympic athletes, US presidential candidates, Hollywood film directors, special forces operatives and serial entrepreneurs. 
He's also the founder of 4PC, a community of leaders, entrepreneurs, and coaches who encourage and support each other to reach their fullest potential and make their greatest contribution. Rich is a valued thought leader within the coaching community, building on the success of his first book, The Prosperous Coach, which he co-authored with Steve Chandler. And by the way, if you're a coach who wants to build a successful business by making a big impact for your clients, you will find The Prosperous Coach essential reading. I've personally benefited from Rich's wisdom and guidance by attending his coaching intensive events on both sides of the Atlantic as a delegate and later a speaker. One big thing I learned from Rich was to embrace the fact that I do my best work as a coach when I follow my own inclinations and I work with high-performing creatives and that by working with them, I can have an outsized impact on the world. And this is typical of Rich. Whoever he works with, he encourages and challenges them to be more themselves, to take their unique gift and hone it in pursuit of outsized ambitions. But high performance comes at a big price. It can lead to loneliness, to pressure, to disillusionment, and if we're not careful, to burnout. In this interview, I ask Rich about what separates the top performers from the rest and how to avoid the pitfalls of success. As always, Rich was very generous with his wisdom and very open about his own struggles and challenges. If you're a high performer yourself, or if you aspire to reach the top of your creative profession, you'll find plenty to inspire you in this interview, as well as a gentle reminder to take better care of yourself along the way. Rich, what made you want to be a coach? Mm-hmm. Oh, you take me back about 12 or 13 years, Mark, because I was a high school teacher at the time um, on, a, on a fast track. Um, I've always been driven. I've always been ambitious. And I was on a fast track to be a head teacher. And I went to do what was called back then, maybe still is, the National Professional Qualification for Headship. And we mm-hmm. were trained in coaching skills. It was, ju- it was just becoming in vogue really for leaders to understand the power of coaching. And we were trained in coaching. And within a year, I'd lost my job. I went to work at a new school with a very inspiring boss. We were going to change the nature of education. And within a few weeks of me arriving, he got pushed out by someone at an even higher level than him, government level. And the new boss arrived and she wanted her own team. And very unceremoniously, I was told there was not a place for me in that organization. But I had coaching in my toolkit. And I, I ran away, if I'm really honest. I was pretty humiliated by being uh, fired. Um, ran away to Thailand to sit on a beach, do a bit of yoga. And, and uh, I, I can make it sound like a cool story, but I was pretty humbled by what had happened. But I was sitting on a beach with a pack of playing cards with coaching questions on. And people would say, what are they? And I'd say, it's called coaching. And they would say, can I play? And I began coaching people on a beach. And I had this insight a few weeks of being on that beach that I want this to be my career. 
I love this. And, and that was the start of this career that I've been in for 12 years now. I love that question, can I play? Mm. Yeah. I mean, that's, that suggests quite a lot about coaching, doesn't it, and change? Well, having those playing cards made coaching really easy for me at the beginning because I didn't have to think about what questions to ask. I mean, it's great to have powerful questions to ask. Um, I wrote an article once about 121 powerful coaching questions. And then a friend of mine, who you may know, Michael Bungay-Stanier, wrote a book. Oh, yes. yes. Came yes. Out Michael's been on the show. Oh, awesome. So The Coaching Habit is a great um, uh, book, which has seven questions mm. and great yeah. questions. But I didn't have to think of what questions to ask because the playing cards would ask the questions. And then the people would begin to open up. And I remember somebody said to me, and it, and it really touched me deeply, it really moved me. She said, wow, Rich, spending this hour in conversation with you has changed my life. And it took a while for that to sink in because I had this thought of, I'm, I'm a nobody. I, I was proud of my title as a vice principal, deputy head teacher. And, and I, was, I felt like a nobody. I had no job anymore. I was just on this beach playing this game called coaching. And she said, you changed my life. And I, that felt really good. And I just said, I want to do more of this. And I came to the United States in 2006 because I thought I need a qualification. I've got to be a professional. I'm doing air quotes here. And mm-hmm. um, got to be a professional. The course I signed up for uh, had a money back guarantee after two days. And it was so terrible that I quit. Uh, it was a training course about coaching, but it was just so poor uh, that I quit it. And I started doing other things. I did a course about relationships and I did a course about man-woman dynamics. And uh, I met a woman called Monique who I ended up proposing to 10 days later. Um, And then I think, you know, I think sometimes, Mark, being a, a tourist or being an immigrant is a really powerful metaphor because you don't have any baggage with you. And I left all my baggage at home. I was willing to do everything differently. So I, I literally, I mean, I did propose to Mon. I wouldn't necessarily recommend this. If you said, I've just met someone, I'm going to propose to them 10 days later. Um, but sometimes you just know. And I said, will you marry me? And she said, yes. And then she said, well, actually, I'm a singer. I'm off to India in a couple of weeks to perform. And I said, well, I've got nothing else going on. I'll come. And we, we lived in India for a, a few months. And then I said to her, you know, I've always dreamed of traveling the world with a beautiful woman. And she said, I'm in. And so we then spent the next year traveling the world together. And I began my coaching career that way. And I began coaching people as I traveled. My first ever coaching client paid me $10 a month. And that was for four Ooh. calls. I made $2.50 a, a call. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but I, I, it was what I needed to do. I was, and I was proud of that, by the way. I was excited being paid to do something I loved. It was amazing. And so that was how I started my career. And it's interesting because when we are high achievers and we're focused on, you know, we can be focused on the wrong things like the job title, like the status, like the, the big office, the, all, all the status symbols. And you had all of that torn away from you, which must have been very, very difficult for you to go from, from there to, to being, in your words, a nobody. And yet, even as a nobody, you were able to invite people into this space where their life changed. 
Well, looking back, I can tell you it was the best thing that ever happened to me. I couldn't see it at the time, but I'm an Enneagram three. I know you're familiar with the Enneagram. Mm -hmm. um, Enneagram is simply a way of understanding how you show up in the world, how you operate when you're unconscious. And an Enneagram three, your default way of being is to try and look good. And that was me my whole life. I, I've been trying to prove myself to my dad for most of my life, you know, Mark. And it's only the last few years I've begun to see it. And I'd want you to like me. I'd, I'd do whatever it could to please you. Um, and when I lost my job, it felt like everything was stripped away from me. And I was, I was really proud of this title that I had. And then I was a nobody. And I had to come back from that and recreate myself. And it was very humbling and had a really powerful impact on me. And it helped me to reinvent myself and to let go of the stories about who I should be or who I needed to be. And I, I am so grateful for it in this moment. There's a wonderful book called Stumbling on Happiness by Daniel Gilbert. And he points out that most of the things that we aspire to and crave and wish for that we think will make us happy turn out usually not to. And the classic is winning the lottery because uh, people can track that. And, and almost everyone who wins the lottery counterintuitively not only turns out to be less happy afterwards but turns out to ends up having less money after winning the lottery than before and the things that we would never think to wish on anybody like getting a life-threatening illness losing a loved one getting a divorce losing a job people tend to look back on those things and say oh my god i look back on it now and see it as i'm so grateful for that experience because i learned so much from it and that was me and did this factor into your decision to focus on working with high achievers in your coaching practice? The fact that you'd been through that that whole roller coaster. It's part of it. It's it's in there. Um, I think it, just doing a lot of deep work on myself, realizing that I've been a high performer for a long time, for most of my life. I've always aimed high. I've always been really ambitious. Um, still to this moment, to this day, when I when I have a success in something or other, I give myself. See if you recognize this one. I give myself about 25 seconds to acknowledge myself before I look at how could I have done it better, <laughs> bigger, different, improved yeah. it, or yeah. I'm looking into the future like, what am I doing next? Yeah. And, 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 and this is, this is the, the blessing and the curse of being a visionary, of being a creative, is that you're future focused. You're always looking out there into the future. And it, it can really serve us as visionaries as leaders as creatives to pause and slow down and turn around and say what have i accomplished what have i done in the last 90 days we're always surprised at what we have achieved so as i did this deep work and deep reflection on myself i began to see what had driven me to be a high performer and like i say a lot of it a lot of it for high performers can come from our pain from our struggles and for me much of it was trying to prove myself to my father and seeing that, doing work on myself, and, and noticing that I was drawing people to me who were like me. I mean, it's, it's the, the, the biggest secret behind being a coach is that your clients are you. Your dream clients are you. Yeah. And, and with, with all your pain and struggles and insights that you have into your life, you help them to see into theirs. And so I, I just began. Initially, it was a lot of very powerful women I worked with. I think if I'm honest, maybe I was a little bit afraid of working with more powerful men. And then I began to work with powerful men too. And now there's no distinction for me. And I, and I, and I know that world of being a high performer. 
I know what it feels like to be very lonely. I know what it feels like as a leader to be taking care of everybody else and leaving yourself last so you're worn out crying on the floor because no one's there taking care of you because you wouldn't even let them if they tried. Yeah, and I mean, what are the consequences of that? Uh, loneliness. Uh, it can be very lonely being a leader. Uh, it, it, you can feel a lot of guilt. Uh, I feel guilty if I'm working. I feel guilty I'm not at home with my wife and my little boys. If I'm at home with my wife and my little boys, I feel guilty uh, that I'm not at work doing more to grow the business. And God forbid I should be lying on a massage table somewhere. I feel guilty that I'm not at home with the kids mm-hmm. or, or at work in the office. So there's a sense of constant sense of guilt. Um, and so there, there's, a, there's a lot. I, I've been playing with the title of the book that I'm writing. The Success Paradox is one of the titles that we've played with, The Loneliness of Leadership. Uh, I've been also playing with this idea of the price of leadership. There are many books on how to become a leader, yeah. but there are not many books on the price that you pay. And the moment I say that to people, there's this, mm. there's this kind of, not a gasp, but just this sense of, oh, like they get it. And the only question I have to ask is, well, what's the price you're paying right now? And that starts a really interesting conversation because there are, there's a different price that each of us is paying and it can change over time. But there's always a price to pay to be a high performer, to be a leader. And it's a start of a very interesting conversation. And what would you say separates the, I mean, you talk about the top 4% of performers in any given field. What would you say separates them from the others? Um, not a lot. Sometimes luck, let's be honest. Sometimes luck, being the right place, the right time, the right connection. Um, I, I like the number 4% because it's, it's, it's the top 20% of the top 20%. And if you've read the 80-20 rule, if you're familiar with that premise, uh, you know, 20% of your team will be creating 80% of your results. Uh, yeah. 20% of the activities you do will generate 80% of the results. So I'm always interested in that idea of looking for what's, what's in the top 20% and what's in the top 20% of the top 20% is, is the top 4%. So I, I like this concept of working with the top 4%. Um, I run a mastermind group for high performers I call 4PC, and it stands for the 4% Club. But there's there's another reason I picked on that number. Um, Stephen Kotler wrote a book called The Rise of Superman. And in that book, he he has this premise that he calls the 4% rule. So he started high-performing athletes, the kind of people who jump off a mountain in a wingsuit or ski the highest mountains. You know, know, you're you're an entrepreneur like me, uh, a, a, a creative too, when you're doing creative work, when you're an entrepreneur, it can sometimes feel like life or death. Yeah. Put your book, book out in the world, put, create a piece of art that people look at, speak on a stage, it can feel like life or death. And these people he studied, it really is life or death. You watch the Olympics right now, some of these people make a mistake and their life is on the line. Well, what he discovered is the only way to perform at that level, and we know this as creatives too, the only way to perform at, at a high level is to be in flow. That, that, that you're in flow when, when time just seems to disappear. Oh, my God, I've been doing this for seven hours. I didn't even know. I haven't even had lunch. Um, to, to perform as an elite athlete, you have to be in flow. And the only way to grow when it's a life or death situation is to push yourself just 4% beyond where you are in this moment. Yeah. 
The problem for most people in life is that 4% is actually too big. The challenge for high performers is that 4% is too low. We're always looking at how can I make this exponential leap, this massive difference, this big change. And actually, it's in those tiny steps that exponential growth can occur. That's why I'm interested in this number of 4%. It's really fun for me to look at what that looks like. Yeah, you know, as you say that, it strikes me. I've always been keen on learning languages and quite proud of my ability to do it. And this is something I really discovered with Japanese because when I started learning it, I was really gung-ho and I thought I was going to nail this in six months. And then I discovered it's it's actually a lot harder than doing French or German or or a European language. And so that whole trying to really make impressive gains quickly w- was the biggest barrier I had. And it was only the last couple of years where I really slowed down. And I'm just deliberately limiting myself to doing a little bit each day, half an hour each day, that actually I'm, I'm starting to make genuine progress with the language. Yeah, beautiful, Mark. I, I, for me, as a coach working with high performers, I, I break my job into two elements. I say I do two things. I help you dream bigger than you've ever dreamed, and then I help you take tinier steps than you've ever taken. And because I'm working with high performers, they are already people who dream really big. Um, you know Jen Gresham, right? Uh, yes, I met her at the intensive. So, so Jen, is, she's the, um, she was the for, she's the former assistant chief scientist to the high performance wing of the Air Force. Incredibly high performer, works in the arena of high performance. She's also a mum and she's a creative. She wrote a book of poetry that was published and did extremely well. And she's a blogger too. And when Jen came to me, she was transitioning into coaching. She was just getting her first few clients. And I helped her really step into creating really high-performing clients. But then beyond that, we looked at what's the difference you really want to make in the world? So I'll fast forward a year. Right now, what Jen is doing, she's raising $100 million to fund an X prize. An X prize is where you get a, a bunch of companies and, and individuals who compete to win a prize. And, and the, the prize is when you solve a massive problem, it's going to make a huge difference to humanity. And so what Jen, the prize that she's created is, is to solve this challenge that we know that in 10 years or less, there are numerous fields that will be obsolete. If you're a truck driver, if you're a miner, I think if you're even a financial advisor, your careers will be obsolete in less than a decade. Mm. How can we retrain people really fast with, this, with the skills they need for the future? And that's what Jen's working on with some amazing uh, uh, people she's, she's partnering with to create a, a solution to this prize, to this problem. So um, that's, that's what I do. I help people dream bigger than they've ever dreamed. And I help them do it by taking tinier steps than they've ever taken. And so I'll give you a little heads up. I know you love to have a challenge um, when we do this, but this will relate to it. One of my favorite quotes in life is from Tim Ferriss. Tim says, a person's success in life can usually be measured by the number of uncomfortable conversations he or she is willing to have. I'll say it one more time because it just really lands well when you hear it the second time. A person's success in life can usually be measured by the number of uncomfortable conversations he or she is willing to have. Now, that's the other thing that I'm doing when I'm working with a client. I'm helping them to get comfortable feeling 
uncomfortable. Sometimes it's conversation, sometimes it's something else, but your willingness to feel uncomfortable is going to transform your world. Well, you know, that makes me think of when I started working with creatives, I thought my focus would be mostly on helping them get their work done, whether it's writing or acting or playing or, or, or whatever it is. And that's still quite a big part of what I do. But that issue of getting people to have the uncomfortable conversation and guiding them through that is, I would say, is at least as big in the work that I do with clients. Because whatever you're doing in a career, you've got to have these conversations to make things happen. You know, there's no point writing the best book or being the best on paper. You've actually you've got to go out there and convince people that they should pay attention to you and that there's all kinds of relationships that need to be navigated and decisions that need to be made and deals to be struck. And it's really hard to do that from just sitting behind a keyboard. Yes. Yeah. You, you can't. <laughs> you can't. You're, you're, you might be one of those undiscovered artists who gets discovered after your death and becomes famous. Uh, there are many of those who, who are su super successful now. They have their pictures in the Louvre, but, but you'll be long gone. This day and age, uh, the way I distinguish it is between a mission and a message. You can have your mission. You can be really clear, I'm creating this kind of art, this kind of writing. This is the way that my creativity comes out in the world. But then there's your message. You have to get that out there to other people. And look, I speak as an introvert. So I, I, and my distinction for introvert and extrovert is it has nothing to do with being shy. I'm not shy. But I get drained being around a lot of people. If I go to a party with my wife, who's an extrovert, I come home and I want to stay in my house for the next mm -hmm. week and watch Netflix. We come home and she wants to go to a party the next day, if not the next night, the same night. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I get drained being around other people. So I have to find ways to recharge my energy. Look, you, you, uh, here's a fun one for you. Um, how many introverts does it take to change a light bulb? None. If you're an introvert, you don't want to change the, the freaking light bulbs. It means more people would see you're at home and they'd come and knock at the door and want to hang out with right. you. Right. <laughs> so I get it if you find it hard being out in the world. And at the same time, you have to find your way of being out in the world. And it doesn't matter this day and age whether that's in rooms hanging out, meeting people, whether it's creating a presence online because you write or you draw or you create videos. But you, there is no point being at home being a best-kept secret. You could be the most creative person on the planet, but if nobody knows that, it doesn't serve you, it doesn't serve your art, and it doesn't serve the world. You've got to find a way to be out there. And that's going to mean you've got to stretch your ability to feel uncomfortable. The magic happens outside of your comfort zone. Right, and let's... Let's season the bad news with the good news that, you know, this is where the magic happens. You know, there's nothing like creating something and then seeing it really connect with an audience, whether that's, that's one person or it's a stadium full of people. Oh, it feels amazing, right? It feels so good. And you have to be willing to get the, the nose along the way. Uh, oh, what's her name? Who wrote Harry Potter? I've forgotten her name. Um, J.K. Rowling. J.K. Rowling. Look at how many rejections she had before that book was out in the world. And you see it with almost, almost any overnight success 
is at least a decade in the making. That That's the way I see it. Um, you know, we get swayed when we see this stuff like, uh, uh, what do you call it, American Idol and all this stuff on TV. Like, oh, I just got to show up and sing one song and I'll be famous. Maybe there's a few people that happens to. Although most of them, I'd say, have been, been, been training their whole life for it. For most of us, I wrote an article a few years ago with the title Mastery, and the subtitle was how to become an overnight success as a coach in 46 years. Hmm. I mean, my entire life was going towards it. In, in 1992, I went as a youngster to teach science in Africa. I spent two years in Botswana teaching science to kids in their third language. I had to learn to listen really carefully to them. I had to learn to be really careful in my language as I spoke to them so they would understand me. And I had to learn not to make any assumptions. I lived in London my whole life where we had double-decker buses. These kids that I taught in their little village had never seen a building with two stories, let alone a vehicle with two stories. Those skills 20 years later were of use in my career as a coach. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the great things, I think, I mean, you've, you've touched on some highs and lows and setbacks and, and failures and in inverted commas, and I'm sure anybody listening to this can relate to all of that. But the great thing is if you're a creator of any kind, it's all grist to the mill. I mean, I, I'll sometimes say when I'm coaching a coach and they're dealing with challenges in their life, and I'll say, well, this is just look on the bright side. This is going to be a great coaching story in five years' time. <laughs> or my, 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 wife, my wife always says... If we have a big argument, she always says, she gets mad and she says, I know if we ever end up splitting up and getting divorced, you'll just turn this into a great story and enroll clients <laughs> from it. And I have to laugh, Mark, because it's probably true. But it also is true if you're any kind of artist, and I, and I do think there's artistry in coaching, you, you can recycle your pain. It, it's, it's, it's experience. It's material on one level. So, you know, so... Oh, absolutely. You know, I'm talking to my wife. She, she, she is a creative. She's a singer-songwriter. She's a jazz singer, won awards for her singing. She is getting ready right now for her first ever one-woman show. It's about her story growing up mixed race here in the United States, growing up in L.A. And it, she's putting all of the pain and the challenges, what it was like to be a mixed girl, having a white mother who comes from upstate New York and a, and a black father who comes from uh, North Carolina who grew up during segregation, what it was like to have a white mum who didn't know how to deal with curly hair. Mm -hmm. She puts all this pain out and anguish out into this show and it moves people to tears. Mm -hmm. So your grist to the mill, oh my God, your pain is what people are craving because so few people are willing to share this. And the moment you share your pain, People don't hear your story. They hear your story through their story. And it lets them in. And I think there's another distinction, which I know is important for you, between, you know, we're not talking about showing up as a victim and just telling it as out of self-pity. We're, we're showing up as a creator and saying, well, here's what happened. Here's what I'm making of it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love the distinction between creator and creative. Um, anyone can be creative. We're all creative. A creator takes something new, it brings something new into the world. Um, and it doesn't, I mean, there's, there's really nothing new in the, in the world, but when you filter it through your story, your pain, your challenges, your way of seeing the world, something new is birthed for the very first time. 
And that distinction of being a creator, it means you have to be willing to get your hands dirty, feel uncomfortable, collect nose, fail again and again and again. And, and on the other side of that, something interesting is coming. Right. And let's pile on a little bit more bad news, which <laughs> is, you know, all the things we've talked about, the hard work, the recycling of the pain, the difficult conversations, the, you know, the, the bouncing back from, from setbacks, that gets you to a certain level. And yet one of the things you say is that what got you here, tied to your current level of achievement, won't get you there it actually starts to hold you back. Could you say a bit more about that? Yeah. Yeah, I heard a, a line the other day which really struck me. What will get you to a high level of success in the first part of your career is saying yes to almost every opportunity. What will take you to the next level of your career is saying no to almost every opportunity. And for where I am in my life and my business right now, that hit home really viscerally. And so whether or not that statement's true for you, wherever you are in your world right now, as you listen, there's, there's something that you're doing that has led to the success you're at right now. And often the very same thing can hold you back from what's really possible for you down the road. And you have this great list of the eight guilty secrets of extraordinary top performers in the book. Could you maybe share one or two of those and uh, as a kind of specific example of this? Okay, yeah. So let me, let me talk about some of this. This is one of the things I've, I see as I work with really high performers is that we often, we, we can be admired by everyone around us, but on the inside, we've, we've got a lot of stuff that we're carrying that we've got no one we can share it with. So one of the first guilty secrets I, I hear and see a lot in high performers is that you, you get all this admiration and acknowledgement from people around you, but on the inside, you feel lazy. It doesn't feel like you're doing very much. So I often, I often get that uh-huh sense of acknowledgement when someone uh, you know, is in that world. because and So here's the way I look at it. What feels like laziness is a sign you're actually working in what I call your zone of genius. You're doing that thing that feels so natural and so effortless and so fun for you that every time you do it, you're in flow that you can't see, like, well, wouldn't anybody be doing this? But this isn't hard. I love to do this. I'm more energized at the end of the day than I was at the start of the day. So you have this sense that you're being lazy. No, you're not being lazy. You're actually working on that thing that only you can do, and it has this massive impact in the world. That's why you get all this acknowledgement and success and admiration. And so one of the things I do when I'm working with a high performer is not only help them let go of that sense of guilt about feeling lazy, but I break them the bad news that their job is to, is to feel more and more lazy <laughs> as life goes on, because it will actually be a sign they're stepping more and more into their zone of genius, that thing that only they can do. And, and they'll feel lazy because it will feel so fun. Well, you see, you know, we've had 200-odd years of the Protestant work ethic and the Industrial Revolution telling us that value comes from working really hard and being really productive. And yet, particularly if you're doing something creative, the value you create is, is the value you create. It doesn't really matter so much how much time or effort went into it. If you can do something amazingly well, then 
that will entertain or delight or provoke or or get people to see the world in a, in a new way. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, I have a distinction between effortless and easy. I'm, I'm, I'm not looking at easy here. I, I'm, I'm not afraid to do hard work. I'll do hard work when it's called for, when it's needed. But I'm looking for the effortless path. Where's the path that lights me up, that has, that has it feel like fun when I've done you know, a 10-hour day and I didn't even stop to eat because I was so excited? That's what I call effortless rather than easy. And it's so easy to dismiss an ability we have. I mean, quite often I'll get this. I might go and see a client perform on stage or I'll... I'll watch their film or they'll read their book and, and they will tell me how terrible it was. And I'm like, and I'm saying, well, does it make any difference if I tell you I thought it was amazing? And they say, no. <laughs> so Monique used to come home from a performance and I'd say, how was it? And she'd say, it was terrible. And I learned I was asking her the wrong question. What I needed to ask her was, what did they think of your performance? And she'd go, oh, they mm. loved it. Because when you're a high performer, you set the bar really high. If she got one note wrong, one word wrong, she felt terrible. The fact that nobody noticed didn't count in her mind because she couldn't see what they were looking at. And so this is the challenge of being a high performer. I mean, it's also, it's not just a challenge, it's also the thing that makes us a high performer, that we set the bar that high. But having someone like you on your team as a coach who can remind you that actually the audience loved you, it, it can really help. And, and this, this probably goes to the second guilty secret. You're not lonely, but you feel very alone. You're not lonely. You're not necessarily missing friends. You might have a great community and great number of friends and family around you. But it can feel very lonely being a creative, being a creator, being a leader, being an entrepreneur, being a high performer. Because there aren't, there aren't many people you can talk to about what's going on. When you're a leader, it's not appropriate to tell your board of directors, your employees, even your husband, wife, or kids, some of the challenges that you're facing. You keep a lot inside. When you're a creative, as you said earlier, sometimes you have to pour out your anguish to get to the other side of this. And, and you don't always want to share that. So you can feel very alone. And having a coach, someone who's with you, someone who know, you know is on your side, who you can open up to, and hide nothing and hold nothing back and they'll do the same, that can be life-changing. And also I think having a peer network, people who do the same as you or as close to the same as you as you can get when you're, you're following a unique path. I know this is one of the things you're great at, Rich, is you assemble groups of people and you know who can support and encourage each other. Thank you, yeah. Yeah, so 4PC is, is the, the, the mastermind group that I run for really high performers. And we have artists in there. We have entrepreneurs in there, leaders in there. The way I describe 4PC is you're going to be in this community of people who it, it, it should, the entrance requirement is that you should feel a little bit in awe of us and we should feel a little bit in awe of you. And, and almost <laughs> everybody, I, I asked the other day, we had a, a little retreat and I asked everybody, who thinks that you're the one who pulled the wool over my eyes or my team and that somehow you snuck in here. Everyone else is up to something amazing, but somehow you're the one who fooled us and got mm. in anyway. Yeah. And everyone's hand went up. And, yeah. and I, the way I describe 4PC is it's a community of high performers in all sorts of fields. And when you think that thing that you're up to looks impossible, looks challenging, you're surrounded by people who are doing things that look more impossible than what you're doing. 
So suddenly the bar is raised on what's possible for you. And it works exactly the same in the other direction for everybody else. Yeah. And I love the, the phrase you use in the book where you say, if you're in the most interesting person in the room, then you're in the wrong room. Ah, yeah. I, I, I love that one because, uh, you know, it can feed our egos being the person in the room who's the creative, who, who other people want to hang out with and speak to because we're really interesting. But if you're the most interesting person in the room, you're in the wrong room. So I curate rooms of really interesting people. Uh, I, I do something five, six, seven times a year that I call interesting people dinners. We never got past the working title. Um, but what I decided is that, um, you know, I'm an introvert. Parties are not my thing. At a party, I'm the guy in the corner talking to one person all night. Um, but I love meeting people. And so I said, well, what if I created a way to put really interesting people in a room with me? What if we had interesting people dinners? So a few times a year, we go to somewhere interesting. Uh, we've been to the Getty Museum when they have uh, a, a restaurant uh, that's only open on, on one day a week. And they have a round table there. And I want a round table so there's no private conversations going on. And I bring in uh, myself and seven other people. People are up to really interesting things. And we have a couple of ground rules. One, you're not allowed to tell anybody who you are or what you do before the night begins or, or at the beginning of the evening. We, we have had, uh, we've had artists, we've had magicians, we've had, we had Leonardo DiCaprio's acting coach. <clears throat> we had the state controller for California. She runs the sixth biggest economy on the planet. Um, and we put these interesting people in a room and tell them they're not allowed to tell them who they, anyone else who they are. And then I say, <laughs> we're, going to, we're going to play a game. And the game is I'm going to ask an interesting or challenging or provocative question. And then my invitation to you is to answer it. And there are three ways to answer. You can refuse to answer. You can tell a lie or you can tell the truth. And we find the most juice is when you tell the truth. And I've been stunned. People open up and share the most deep, intimate stories in this setting with one another. And it's been a really fun way to get together with a group of fascinating people. So I think this is so important is find people who have got similar aspirations and ambitions to you. I mean, as you were speaking, I was put in mind of Mimi Calvati, uh, my poetry mentor, who's been on the show. I, you know, when I used to go to writing classes in my 20s, I was nearly always top of the class or near the top. And it, it reassured me in my, <laughs> my mm. sense of, oh, you know, I must be talented. But I never really stayed and I never really learned much. And then I walked into Mimi's class and within half an hour I realized, okay, you're not in the top half of this class. Mm -hmm. And it, at first it was a bit of a shock to the system, but it was actually really exciting because I realized how how much I had to learn, which was yeah. I can have conversations with the friends I made in that class over the years with that I can't have with anyone else yes. because the people who are your peers and whatever your field is, they're the ones who, and it's really amazing how often you'll discover they've got very similar hopes and fears and doubts to you. Yeah. And yeah. so anybody listening to this, just, if you don't have that environment, maybe start going to look for it. And I also say, um, particularly for us as creative people, I think creativity lies at the intersections, the intersections of different fields. And so if you only stay in your field, if you're a coach who only reads and learns about coaching, if you're a poet yeah. who only reads poetry, you, there's a limit to where you're going to be able to go in your creativity. But if you're a poet who goes to hang out in a room full of uh, designers or a designer who goes to hang out in a room full of 
musicians, interesting stuff is going to happen at those intersections of those fields. New relationships, new ways of thinking, new insights. That's worth bearing in mind. Yeah. So if you've got, if you're the kind of person you say, well, I'm really into this thing, but it doesn't seem to relate to that thing, which feels a bit odd, I would say go for both of them because you never know what interesting uh, intersections you're going to have from from different peers and also different mentors. I mean, I've had mentors like Mimi in poetry, uh, in coaching. There's you and there's there's Peleg. Yep. There's Brian Clark, who I work with, who's a really successful online entrepreneur, internet marketer. Now, there's not many people, you know, and Kristen Linklater, speaking Shakespearean verse, now, there's people who work with a lot of those people individually, but there's, I don't think there's anyone else who's worked with all of them and has got that same kind of blend of interests. Yep. For a while, I just thought, well, why am I interested in this and that? And now I, I've learned to trust that and trust that it will all, you know, that, that the mix will, will somehow have some creative benefit down the line. Well, and it makes you you. And the most creative thing you can do is be more you than you've ever been. It, it, it's, there's, some, there's magic in diving back into, actually, here's a fun one for you. What were you doing at six years old? What, make you, what made you come alive at six years old? So at six years old, for me, I was an avid reader. Oh, my God, I love to lose myself in, in stories and adventures. And that's been part of my life, my, my entire life, uh, reading learning and adventure. And a and, uh, great example of this, Peter Diamandis, who's an amazing entrepreneur, created the, the XPRIZE, first ever privately funded spaceship to, to go into space and return, um, founded, I think, 19 companies now. Uh, Peter, at six years old, wanted to be an astronaut and, and spent his entire life um, uh, working on that career. He, he was a, a, a physician, a doctor in medical school when his um, professor called him in and said, Peter, what do you, what do, you do? Why are you here uh, starting to be a doctor? Like, I just don't get that you want to be a doctor. And he said, oh, no, I don't. I don't want to be a doctor. I want to be an astronaut. But one of the only ways if you don't go into be, being um, a pilot, uh, go that route, is to be a doctor. And the, the professor was very sharp and said, look, here's what I'll do. I will pass you in all your exams if you promise never to practice as a doctor. He said, done, <laughs> you're in. <laughs> but Peter at six years old was, was one of an astronaut and made his entire career around that. He, one of his companies right now is called Planetary Resources. It's about mining asteroids. It, this is a man who's doing now what made him feel alive at six years old. Me too. Great way to look at what, what do you want to do next? Go back to what mm. made you feel alive when you were a youngster. And so for you, Rich, I mean, we've, we've covered quite a lot of your journey from six years old through teaching and <laughs> beginning to be a coach and achieving success and losing it and then finding it again. You've worked with a lot of successful people doing amazing things. And, you know, one of the big distinctions in your book, which I love, is between achievement and fulfillment. So where do you find your fulfillment these days? I mean, you, you've been involved in a lot of achievements yourself and your client, but what, what drives and fulfills you? Three things come to mind immediately. Number one, um, I'm really proud that we've raised the money to build five different schools in Africa over the last few years through my business. I'm really proud of that. I, I have a passion for education, passion for Africa too, having spent a lot of time living there and traveling there, so that we've helped to build five different schools that will change people's lives 
I went to Liberia four years ago, led a group of teachers to run an empowerment event. Sorry, led a group of coaches to run an empowerment event for 400 teachers and took clean water filtration systems to villages that never had clean water. Their children died without access to clean water. I'm proud of that, where we can make a real visceral difference in the world. I get fulfillment there. I get fulfillment with my kids. Uh, I get fulfillment hanging out with my little boys. Tonight, we are going to do indoor skydiving. Uh, it's their, their cousins. They're four and six. So I'm not sure if they'll, they'll, they'll be up for it when it actually comes to it, but their cousin has, has organized this for her birthday party. She's a bit older. Um, but I'm excited. I'll be hanging out with my boys and having fun with them. Um, and then the, well, the third one is, uh, so I, he, for my journey from being six years old, I'm going to be 50 in May this year. And I've taken on a, a challenge for myself. I, I made the mistake of telling one of my coaches, who's an ex-Navy SEAL, that I maybe I should do a challenge this year. I'm 50. And I mentioned the Spartan race, which was one of those obstacle races. And then he, every time I go back to a coaching session, he would bring it up. And I was like quietly hoping he'd forget about it. Why did I mention that? I'm you not an told athlete. told that to a Navy SEAL? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I'm not an athlete. I never have been. I'm, I'm not that physical. Um, and then he, one day out of the blue, he said, I've got it, Rich. I know what you need to do. You need to do three Spartan races this year. And as soon as he said it, Mark, I knew he'd nailed it because if I did one, it wouldn't have mattered if I'd come last. I would right, have turned right. it into a great story about yeah. overcoming adversity and failing. And, but three, like, I'm going to have to, it doesn't matter where I come in the first one, but I'm going to have to improve for the second and I have to really go for it in the third and I'm in, and, and I'm in training right now. I just did a three-mile run this morning. I've, I've been running every day this week, and I'm in. I'm training. And so fulfillment there from seeing myself improving, my body changing, um, taking care of what I eat, that's another way right now that I'm getting fulfillment. And I should point out, we, we started recording at 9 o'clock, Rich's time. So if he's run three miles already, then um, he's serious about it. Yeah, I did it at 5.30 this morning, yeah. Wow. Well, look, I, I, so here's something interesting. I, I, I've done a little bit of boxing um, in the last year. Uh, I, I've got a year and a half ago, I said to a member of my team, I want you to have this new job. Your job is to help me do the things that I'm afraid of and the things I'm procrastinating on. And so she said, well, what are you afraid of? And I said, well, I've always secretly wanted to do boxing, but I've never been brave enough to do it. And uh she got, I, I got a text from her the next day and said, you're signed up to a boxing class round the corner to you. And I went along to this boxing class and I started boxing. And the other day I went to my barber, 7am, got an early haircut before took, taking the boys to school. And um, I was, I, by chance, the guy who, who created that boxing school was there. And he, he used to be, a, he wasn't a heavyweight champion himself, but he was a sparring partner of some world heavyweight champions. So a really high-level boxer. Mm -hmm. he, he was a, um, the captain of his football team at university, so he's an athlete. Uh, he's also a very successful entrepreneur and also an actor. And he mentioned that he'd been training at 4 a.m. that morning with his trainer. He does that every day. And two days later, I'm out shopping with my boys. I come out of a store. <clears throat> somebody calls my name, and it's him. And he's running down the street. It's now four in the afternoon and he's jogging. And I had this realization that we think that mastery and success is this place to get to. And then finally we can relax. We can put our feet up and it's easy street and it's fun. And, and if you want to be a master, the game doesn't change. The nature of the game might change, but the game doesn't change. You're always 
playing. You're always stretching yourself. You're always pushing yourself. He gets up at every day at 4 a.m. to work out, and he doesn't have to. And, and I loved that. I got this real insight from seeing him there, that it's willingness to keep pushing yourself, to have fun too. You want to take care of yourself too, but to keep pushing yourself and have fun with it. So, Rich, you're clearly a man who likes a challenge. Mm-hmm. And so this is the point of the show where I ask my guest to set the listener a creative challenge. So something that they can go and do within seven days of listening to this interview that will stretch you creatively, personally, ideally both. Great. Got it. Love it. So this comes back to the quote from Tim Ferriss, a person's success in life can usually be measured by the number of uncomfortable conversations he or she is willing to have. Uh, My challenge is for you to get uncomfortable in the next seven days and then let us know about it. So I'll give you some ways that you can get uncomfortable. One way to get uncomfortable and be able to measure it is to collect no's. There's a line we use in our book, the first book I wrote uh, called The Prosperous Coach, Yes Lives in the Land of No. You want to have more yeses, you want to get some, whether you're selling a piece of artwork, whether you want to get an agent or a publisher for your book, whatever you want to do to get your creativity out into the world, go and collect some no's in the week ahead. That's one, one way of doing this challenge. Come back and let, let, let us know how many no's did you collect in the week ahead. Now, what I love about this one, it reframes a no because they get to email you, Mark, and say, oh, my God, Mark, I got three no's. I got seven no's. Whereas a week earlier, it would have been, oh, my God, I got one no. And we get devastated. Um, and it's very real. I, I, I can get you know, 57 likes on a Facebook post, 27 people respond to the same post, and one person writes a negative comment, and I feel devastated. <laughs> very real, very visceral. So let's reframe the no's. Get, get uncomfortable. One way is to collect no's in the week ahead. Um, another way is to, to have some uncomfortable conversations. Uh, come back and l- let us know how many uncomfortable conversations did you have. And, and here, if you really want to play, I'll, I'll up the level for any of the high performers who are listening. So mm. about six years ago, seven years ago, a friend of mine and myself had this game that we played and we called it Outrageous October. We said for the month of October, our job is to make outrageous requests. Things that sound just completely shut, like you can't ask that. And then we did. Mm-hmm. And for that month, I was building my business and he was dating. At the end of that month, I'd made more money than I'd ever made, and he'd had more sex than he'd ever had. <laughs> so you can play this outrageous game however you like, and, and then do it with respect. This isn't to, yeah. Uh, yeah. to be disrespectful in making an outrageous request, but, it, but it's, it's to ask the thing that you'd feel uncomfortable to ask, or you might hold yourself back because you think they would be uncomfortable if I asked them. And you'll be surprised at what happens at the very edge of your comfort zone. So this is my challenge. Get uncomfortable for a week. Collect no's. Make bold requests. Make outrageous requests. Do the things that you wouldn't normally do and then come back and let us know what you've done. Brilliant, brilliant. And if you go to 21stCenturyCreative.fm, there's a contact uh, form on that page. So we would love to hear how you get on with Rich's challenge. So, Rich, thank you very much. As always, it's inspiring and mind-expanding to spend time talking to you. Where can people go to find out more about you and your work? Cool. Thank you. Um, Well, you can always Google my name, richlitvin.com, L-I-T-V-I-N. There's a lot of videos out there I've created and a lot of stuff about me, a lot of interviews I've done. 
Um, but if you go to my website, richlitvin.com forward slash creative, we put together a page for you guys in particular. So the, I'm working on my, my second book right now. The working title is The Success Paradox, but it's in flux. But, but I put together a very first draft of the first half of the book. And so a lot of the concepts that we, we just touched on today are there and, and you, you've got access to this. Um, this is a bit like um, uh, who, uh, Austin Kleon wrote the book, Show Your Work. Mm-hmm. You, you get to see my work before it's even finished. So richlitvin.com forward slash creative and you can see more there. Brilliant. Thank you, Rich. Love you, Mark. Thank you so much for inviting me on. You have been listening to The 21st Century Creative, hosted by me, Mark McGuinness. You can find the notes for today's show with more information about my guest and links to the sites we mentioned, as well as all the archived episodes at 21stCenturyCreative.fm. If you enjoyed the show, then I hope you'll subscribe in iTunes, and I'm always grateful for your reviews, and also for sharing the show with your friends and followers. If you'd like to have the 21st Century Creative Foundation course delivered to you for free, giving you 26 lessons of advice and worksheets on carving out an original creative career, you can sign up at 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash free course. And if you are an experienced creative interested in getting my help as a private coaching client, you can learn about how I help my clients at 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash coaching. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll join me again soon.